Hi everyone, this is Meredith Carey, and you're listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. More than 130,000 women ask for tips, comments, and recommendations in our Facebook group, also called Women Who Travel, and this week we're back for our third FAQ installment. While I'm not joined by my co-host Lale this week, I have a whole slew of traveler editors to answer some of your burning questions. I've got community editor Megan Spirell. Hi. Travel News Director Aaron Florio. Hello. And Director of Articles Stephanie Wu. Hi, all guys. in the studio today. And I'm going to kick it off with a softball because we're all freezing in the studio right now. Blake in the group asked, any tips on keeping warm on planes? I find them to be super freezing. Who has thoughts? Blanket scarf. <laughs> blanket scarf. <laughs> How do you carry around a blanket scarf? Because I feel like, especially if you're going from a warm place to a warm place, but are freezing on planes, like carrying around a, essentially a blanket. It's not even a scarf. It's really, truly a blanket. It's complicated. Well, okay. I just came back from Lima and obviously it's a billion degrees and very humid in New York right now. And it was winter there. And so I had this big scarf that like I could only wear when I was in the airport and on the plane, but I'd like, honestly, will tie it to like the top of my backpack or something when I don't want to be wearing it. And Mine's from Zara and it's just so big that I can actually like lay it over my body as a sheet. Like it literally covers the length of my body and it's so warm. And I like whenever I don't travel with it, I regret it. And also on my flight, I actually was so cold that I uh, I was on Spirit Airlines and they were incredibly nice. I was really cold. And the people next to me actually complained to the flight attendant about the temperature and they changed it. And I feel like we should always ask for that. <laughs> you never know until you ask. Mm -hmm. Steph, what's your go-to on a plane to stay warm? Yeah, I would say, you know, this is a hard question because you really have to keep in mind where your destination is and also be dressed so that you can theoretically strip off these layers when you land. Um, so for me, it's kind of the little things. So I'll keep smaller items, not as big as a blanket scarf, in my carry-on bag. So a beanie goes a long way. You look a little ridiculous, That's but it covers amazing. your ears. Um, and socks, because sometimes you're wearing sandals, and at least you can throw your socks on underneath and be warmer because circulation, and you don't want to lose the heat from either the top or the bottom of your body. But um, my other tip is always ask the flight attendants, even if you're not flying a red eye and even if you're not in premium economy or business class, see if they've got extra blankets lying around because often they do. And I'll be honest, women are usually operating as you know, less comfortably in airplanes and they often do have extra blankets for you and you just have to know to ask for them. Erin, do you have a go-to travel uniform that keeps you warm? Um, not really anything that hasn't already been said, but I also have a huge scarf, which might not be a blanket scarf, but it's also from Zara, <laughs> which I travel with all of the time. It's really wide. It's really soft. It's really easy to just crunch down into your bag. I can't tell you the exact make, but I always, always uh, fly with that particular scarf because it's so warm and it takes up such little room in my bag, but it wraps really generously. And no matter where I'm flying, I always fly with a light jacket. Always, even if I'm flying to a tropical location, because I always find airports and airplanes, regardless of country and regardless of climate, are always kind of chilly. So I have like the same uniform. Well, not the hotter of a place you go, the higher they're cranking the AC usually. Yeah. So then you you always have the extreme. And also to Steph's point, never take your socks off on a plane <laughs> for many reasons. But <laughs> another reason, because you lose so much of your body heat through your feet. I feel like especially when you're traveling in the winter, keeping your coat with you to either use as a coat or a blanket is key. And you can always, there's always enough room after everyone has settled. Don't do this before everyone has put their bags up. But once everyone is settled on the plane, 
totally feel comfortable to kind of like cram your jacket up there. I quite often use my jacket like a snuggie. Like I reverse the jacket so I don't have to use Ditto. the airplane um, <laughs> blankets. And then Same. I put it over myself like that. I quite like that. It's so much warmer too. Mm-hmm. Um, I also finally gave in and bought one of those puffer jackets that squeezes into a tiny, tiny bag. Uniqlo it's one. so worth it. Mm-hmm. Mine's from Aritzia, this Canadian mm-hmm. brand I love. But the Uniqlo ones work just as well. This is a kind of 180 from the previous question, but uh, Rebecca in the group asked a question that I think about quite often, which is how you can take photos of yourself when you're traveling on your own. I have so many trips when I look back where I'm like, I either didn't take a single photo of myself to prove that like I in fact was there, or it's just like an awkward selfie that I'm going to send to my mom and no one else. What do you guys think about asking strangers to take pictures or some other solution? I have strong thoughts about this, actually, because I think one of the biggest losses that we've encountered with like the selfie sticks, which is ridiculous for so many reasons, and like the selfie culture where you're holding your own phone and taking photos is I used to think one of the nicest moments was when you were traveling and you sort of awkwardly, you know, approached somebody and smiled and asked them awkwardly to take a photo. And they said, of course, they said yes. And then they sort of awkwardly asked you to do the same thing for them. And it was just like a nice moment that two travelers shared with sort of equal level of sort of like shame and happiness and I I know really like the loss of that weird interaction actually has made me sad and I've always sort of observed that when I've gone out and I've seen so many selfie sticks so I'm a huge proponent for always asking whomever is around you to just take a photo of you and kind of off that I will say that you know I often will be at a busy tourist attraction and I'll look for groups of people who are struggling to do the exact same thing and I'll offer to take a photo where their whole party is in it or there's not an arm in it or it's not an awkward selfie pose and honestly nine times out of ten they'll respond and say oh can we do the same for you and it is a polite way and it's a win-win and this gives me less of the fear which I also always have that someone's just going to take my phone and run away with it. 100% something I've thought about before, (laughs) but that's also why I always go for groups. I'm like, ooh, there are enough people here. They won't all run off together. (laughs) Something will happen and I'll get it back. Megan, do you have a go-to move when you want a photo of yourself? I think, yeah, I just like shamelessly ask people. And I think, you, you know, you can tell if someone's like rushing through and not in the mood. And I love what you said, Aaron, about like the encounter with people. Like I've ended up talking to people who have taken my photos or like, you just get to these random short little conversations that sometimes end up with like great travel tips or just nice moments. So always ask people like you regret it when you come back if you don't. My go to move these days is to ask the teen in a family because I know <laughs> that they will like put time and care into taking the photo. And they'll take but, the best photo. And, yeah, they know the angles. They know not to like crouch down and get, come up from above like they know what not to do. Like give you both a vertical and a horizontal uh-huh. option. <laughs> Amazing. Um, this question from Kimmy kind of goes off of that, but is not about traveling solo. Um, She was thinking about hiring a photographer on her trip to Lisbon and Barcelona because, quote, her friends legit suck at taking photos. (laughs) We offer a photographer that comes on our El Camino trips that are going to Colombia and Mexico City and Oaxaca. But are there any other groups that you guys suggest for taking photos as a group? Yeah, I mean, I think off of what Mare was saying about asking the teen in a family to take the photo, I think you run into this similar situation when you're with groups as well, right? You want a photo of everyone. You want a good photo, even when you can't art direct it. Sad but true. 
Um, I think what I've noticed myself doing shamelessly is looking for the person who kind of looks like an Instagram husband or an Instagram <laughs> partner because they will know how to frame a shot. They know not to cut anybody's heads out or bodies out. And I would say I don't think I've ever gone as far as to consider hiring a photographer for a group trip. Love the idea. But I think there are a lot of ways you can get around it by picking out the right types of people to politely ask for them to take a photo for you of you and your friends. There's also this company that actually does this called Flytographer. We have an episode of our former podcast, Travelogue, where we talked to the founder, Nicole Smith, where you bring a local photographer along with you for the day or whatever. It's really good for things like engagement photos, but it's also nice to have one set of professional photos uh, of you wandering around if you are dedicated to the Insta feed and having not stranger photos. Well, and I have friends who use that on their honeymoon. So like they had one day where they were in like Postano, they have this like perfectly picturesque landscape and they had someone come for a day so that when they came back, like they had photos of the two of them and they look even better than their wedding photos. Like they're amazing because they're out in the world and like it captures a moment in time and it feels different, so. I think that's a nice idea though. Honestly, it's something I've never thought of, like just going on a group trip for no sort of apparent celebration, like a honeymoon or a wedding and having actually a professional photographer with you to capture it. It's kind of nice. I feel like the best part for me about having a photographer on the women who travel trips is that I woke up every morning and I had an inbox full of photos and they weren't like staged like me standing against a wall photos. It was like me actually enjoying the thing that I was doing that I never would have been able to ask anyone to be like, hey, can you sit here for 20 minutes and take a candid photo <laughs> of me drumming on this drum? And it must be nice to make yourself realize how often you actually are inclined to reach for your phone and take a photo, right? And it meant that I didn't have to, like I could leave my phone in the hotel room because I didn't even have to think about it. It wasn't a priority. Well, and I think back to like, like during study abroad, I remember that was such a thing when we'd go places like, be like, okay, go like walk like a hundred feet behind us and like take the photo of us walking or like what you take all these lame, like stage candid shots. And when I look back, like it's funny cause I remember that, but I still know that it's like not me in the moment. And I was focused on the photo. And like, I went on one of the earlier women who travel trips as well. And I remember being like, this is what a real candid photo looks like on a trip. And it's nice cause it like kind of transports you to that experience you were having. And the other way, I guess, to get out of hiring just a specific photographer is I've found that more and more really good tour guides are also really excellent at taking photos, particularly if their experience is taking you to see something that everybody wants to photograph. So a safari is a great example. Almost every safari guide can give you tips about how to take a great photo and can also take photos for you. Um, same with a place like you know, if you're chasing the Northern Lights and you'll, you can always, if you're booking a, a, a tour guide, ask if they've got photo experience as well. The next question is from a woman named Kim, and I'm going to direct this one specifically at Erin because she asked, does anyone here face a fear of flying? She wants to book a yoga retreat in Bali, but she's going to be flying from Canada and she's worried about flying and doesn't want that to keep her from going. Yes, I'm a nervous flyer and obviously I fly all the time and I really hate the fact that it might ever stand in the way of me traveling. Um, but there are just very you know, small things that I do to make myself feel better. 
One is you just have to look at the numbers and the facts and the figures in your mind yourself. I had a friend who actually had such a deathly fear of flying. He refused to get on a plane. He had to go to intensive cognitive therapy and it, it cured him. But one of the things his therapist told him that helps me all the time is statistically to be in a plane that goes down, you'd have to be in a plane every day for something like 26,000 years, which when you do that math just seems so uncalculable. It's so uncalculable quantifiable that uh, makes you feel a little bit better. Also, don't freak out about things like turbulence. Turbulence, of course, it makes you get on edge a little bit. It's really not um, the cause of anything massively destructive on a plane, at least looking at all the studies. And again, just remind yourself of all of the situations that you are put in every day that can be more dangerous and how much how easy it is to do that. I think with me, what I realized, my fear of flying actually stems from a lack of control. When I feel like when I'm in a plane, I have no plan B and that's what actually makes me panic. It's not the plane itself. So I think if you can get some type of control over where your panic is stemming from, it might help you conquer it a little more. I know that there are a lot of apps out there that also are geared towards helping people with fears, specifically flying fears. And also the purpose basically is to arm you with all of the information you could possibly need to know about how turbulence works, how flying works, um, what the pilot's doing at any time, even if they're not communicating to you. So I know there's a fear of flying audio course by Captain Stacy Chance that's really amazing. Um, and there's an app like, uh, it's called Valk, V-A-L-K, that is designed by a bunch of airplane and airport staff that you can like hit a panic button and let it know if you're like in takeoff or in the plane and it's flying and there's turbulence and it'll kind of like walk you through a calming exercise that's geared towards that specific moment. So there are ways to prepare yourself before you go and on the flight itself that might help you as well. Um, Kim, if you're worried. Going on to something that is more uh, pleasant and positive and kind of hilarious. Uh, someone in the group, Gabriella, posted an amazing photo that is a half-eaten passport because her dog got to it uh, right before her flight, three hours, in fact, before her international flight. Uh, she says she ended up making it back to the U.S. without having to get a new passport, but got a lot of questions and laughs uh, at with customs agents along the way because it is truly like a half-eaten piece of, uh, of paper. Um, what should you do, Steph, if you at the very last minute have either lost or have a mangled passport on your hands? First of all, guys, if you haven't seen this photo, you have to first of all, join our Facebook group and see it because it is so hilarious and you just feel so much for Gabriella. And it's honestly a traveler's worst nightmare. Um, there are a couple things you can do if you're stranded somewhere and um, your passport isn't working or you've lost it, unfortunately. Um, first of all, of course, getting to the nearest consulate or embassy and finding out um, what kind of appointment you can get in order to get a new one as soon as possible. And um, there are several expedited passport services around the world that you can reach out to in order to help you get a passport in a couple of business days. Um, if your passport is lost or stolen, there are lots of forms online for getting a new one and reporting it stolen. 
if you've got to change your travel plans, that's one of the first things you'll need to look into is letting your airline know that you are without a passport and have to make changes. Um, we've written a lot about this and you can find a lot of these stories on cntraveler.com about what to do if you're stranded or if your passport has been lost or stolen. Also, another reason to buy travel insurance. I feel like the more I travel, the more I realize that like you need travel insurance. And I just feel like that's the, like if you have to change your last minute travel plans while you're on a trip somewhere, like Matt, the first thing I would panic about is like how expensive that's going to be on top of having to do these like crazy expedited services. So do that first. <laughs> and I want to shout out a new service too that you guys might not have heard of. And this isn't if you're on the trip, but this is if you're about to leave um, for a trip and you realize your passport is maybe expired or you can't find it. Um, FedEx just launched this new service where they can actually turn around a passport within 24 hours, which is pretty exciting for both, um, I would say, procrastinators and anyone who gets a little absent-minded around tracking their passport expiration date and whether you're at that six-month mark, essentially. Um, this service is going to cost you quite a bit. It it ends up being about $700 when you combine FedEx's expediting fee plus the normal passport processing fees and um, and getting that passport to you. But it's a good pinch in a last minute. And the actually probably the most convenient part of it is that you don't have to go to a passport agency and you can have the service done at any FedEx around the country and they can even take passport photos for you. And we'll link that story uh, in the show notes. Moving on to Alyssa's question, and I'd like us all to play travel agent for one second. She says she is freshly single and she lives in Austin and she's looking for a trip out of the country. She has $1,500 for this budget for like a week long trip. Where would you suggest she goes? She enjoys hiking and ecotourism and has been to most of the U.S. national parks. So she wants to go out of the country. The classic place to go would be Costa Rica. Um, On $1,500 for a week, though? Maybe not for $1,500 for a week, but the classic place I was going to say is going to be Costa Rica, but there has been a few more camps opening in places outside of Costa Rica, but in the same region. So um, Nicaragua has had quite a few openings in the past couple years, actually. Um, there's a great one called Nicupe, which focuses on outdoor activities. It's much more accessible. Also, Guatemala has some really interesting projects and camps that would probably help you out on a budget that's $1,500. I'll add to the Guatemala thing because I recently was trying to convince another of our coworkers to take her vacation there, um, Lale, the co-host of the podcast. I went a couple summers ago and I had a week and I was like not trying to spend a lot of money and I just felt like like you can hike volcanoes during the day. There's Lake Atitlan, which is just gorgeous, like breathtaking scenery. And it's just really quick to get to from especially somewhere like Austin. And even if you pay a little more for the flight than you would to go to say Mexico, like once you are there, it is so affordable and it feels really different from other places you might go that are nearby. Like there's just such a strong colorful culture there and I feel like I just remember being surrounded by like amazing textiles at all times with like a backdrop of some magnificent volcano that was like active and I think that contrast is really interesting for like kind of any traveler. Yeah in fact one of my friends just returned from a trip to Guatemala and I can't remember the name of the volcano that she hiked but it was basically like something that she trained for for like days to do this hike but you know amateurs can do it but she said it was so incredible because once you reach the summit which was like through the cloud line you could see in the distance 
relatively close to you, but you could see like another volcano, like mm-hmm. essentially erupting. And she said mm-hmm. it was like the most amazing moment of her life where she had done this magnificent hike that she had trained for with a group and a guide. And they broke through the cloud line and you could see like the volcanic like ash and lava like spewing like so close by. She said it was great. Um, I think another great place that's technically still in the U.S. but doesn't feel like it um, would be Puerto Rico. Like there's there's so many flights to the island every single day. I'm sure there are affordable non-stops from Austin. You don't need a passport. And I think just like it's an, a really interesting part of the U.S. where you can be in the city of San Juan and feel like you're seeing amazing architecture and it's kind of it's pretty accessible and like easy for any traveler to navigate. But you can also rent a car and you can cross the island like in a matter of hours or days, depending on how you want to do it. And you can go to different beaches where there's snorkeling and like world-class surfing. Um, they have the El Yunque Rainforest, which a lot of it is still being restored post uh, Hurricane Maria, but there are some trails you can hike and there are actually some operators now that are doing tours, like specific post Maria El Yunque tours that kind of help you navigate what's open and what isn't. Um, you can find a lot of information on that on the National Park System website. And there are a couple islands off the coast as well where you'll just find like spectacular beaches and a a little bit of jungle as well. And I think it's a great way to not go too far and keep it affordable, but still do something that feels different. And I'm going to throw in a vote for Tulum, which is super accessible from Texas, of course. You fly into Cancun and it takes about an hour to get there by car. You can take a, a shuttle, of which there are many daily from the airport, but it definitely really scratches that ecotourism itch. All of the resorts there are super, super eco-aware and sustainable because, of course, they're located on the coastline and everything is a little bit precarious there. And what I actually love about it is you can get a little bit of that outdoorsness by visiting the Cien Con Eco Reserve, which is absolutely stunning. And you can like kayak through the waterways or, you know, this isn't really hiking, but you can head to the Mayan ruins to, to see some of the old pyramids. And actually, my favorite part of a trip to Tulum for um, somebody like the question asker is that the nightlife there is really low key. And so as a single solo traveler, you can go, you can have a drink, you'll meet a ton of other travelers and you'll never feel like you have to be in like pulsing club or an awkward jazz bar alone. Um, And instead, you'll be able to kind of enjoy more of a laid back Mexican nightlife culture without feeling awkward or um, like you stand out. I just want to throw in one more option I forgot about, but I think it's actually a good one, is um, the most nature-focused island in the Caribbean is actually Dominica. It has the most uh, wildlife and the most untouched uh, national parks and jungles, and it has 365 rivers, and it's very off the radar. Very few people are going there. Um, I think that's going to change, though, because I've got a few nice openings this year, but um, it's designed for hiking and doing everything outdoors, so you look into that as well. I have one more destination question for you guys. Dina is asking, she and her girlfriends travel every summer together. They've been to Mexico, Colombia, Guatemala. There we go, Spain. And they go in the summer because they're all teachers. They just went to Colombia and it was very hot this time of year, which it is. Any suggestions on cooler climates for the summer? Love adventure, nothing too extreme. No cruises. 
I mean, I think the first thing to do is if you want, like a lot of those places mentioned are pretty close to the equator, but getting to the other side of it is like the way to get out of summer during summer. So I think like South America is like a pretty easy place to start, Um, whether that's like you know, staying a little closer to the equator in somewhere like Peru, where you can do a lot of different trekking and kind of get outdoors, but it's going to be like, you know, low 60s, like in the Andes, or you can kind of, it's still moderate, but it's cooler. Um, And obviously, if you want to do like actual winter stuff, you can go further south and go skiing in Chile or um, visit Patagonia. And I think there are pretty moderate, like those are popular enough destinations that there are moderate like different activity levels um, if you want to get outside in those places. But I also think like if you want to go farther, I mean, they're like the Australias, New Zealand's of the world. I'm sure you have more ideas there, but just like other side of the equator. Yeah. Or even, you know, you can think of staying close to home and go to a place like Alaska, which during the summertime actually does have, I mean, a very comfortable climate. This year has been an exception. They've been really hot, but you know, the areas around Anchorage are usually hovering around 65 or 70 degrees max. And there are beautiful parts of Canada as well, where you're going to be able to do really nice outdoor things, but it's not going to be stiflingly hot. Um, and you're still going to stay within summer without having to feel you need to get to winter to to sort of escape something that feels so brutal. Um, you know, even, you know, one of my favorite places, especially because we live in New York and it's so close, but Maine is just the most fabulous destination in summer. It's like being at summer camp. It's never too hot. The ocean is incredibly refreshing. There's so many lakes. Um, So think about sort of domestic options as well. And I'll um, just add on to one of Erin's points, which was Canada. And I think that's a really, really fun girlfriend's destination. I went to Banff with a bunch of my girlfriends last year and over the summer, and it was exactly what you're looking for. It was equal parts active, equal parts not hot at all, and equal parts like comfort food and great beer. And, you know, it's really kind of weird to think about in the summer, but you can actually, um, when you're driving between Banff National Park and Jasper National Park, there's this gorgeous road trip route called the Icefields Parkway, and parts of it where you can actually get out and walk on glaciers, which is so thrilling in the summer, but also just a wonderful thing to be reminded of because every time you visit a glacier, you're you're reminded, you know, these beautiful mountains won't be here much longer and they're receding every year. So I think Banff is one of those gorgeous locations that everybody should visit sooner rather than later. And Steph, when you're talking about the glaciers and just making sure we see all these things before they disappear thanks to climate change and a lot of the damage that we're doing to our environment. Christiana asked, um, well, she said that she's getting increasingly worried about global warming and in general, the damage we're causing to the environment with all of our travel. I love traveling, but I can't stop feeling a bit guilty about it when I do it. She would appreciate our input on things that she could do to lessen the damage she's causing by traveling. Any ideas? Well, first, a really obvious um, answer is to pick your location. So if you are okay to be traveling somewhere that you could reach by train, it's going to be better for the environment than by plane. But I also think that, I think inevitably, you know, I think this is like always the issue with travel. We all love traveling. We're not going to not be able to get on planes because then there is such an immediate like stifling to how much we can travel if we do that. But You can think about where you're going and choose a destination where you're actually going to make some type of positive impact, even, you know, even if it isn't in the sort of 
immediate climate change vicinity, uh, go to communities that really rely on tourism dollars for economic support. Um, go to do a trip where you can be, you know, contributing something um, like conservation. Rewilding is a really sort of a trend that we are seeing emerging. People going into these areas and actually repopulating it. We've seen it in Africa with the repopulation of uh, different animal species, but now people are actually rewilding, you know, plant life to different areas and tourists are getting involved with that. So pick a smart uh, destination or a smart trip type to sort of offset the guilt of the travel itself. One of the questions that was also asked in the group was about how if you're going to a country where you can't drink the tap water, how you get out of drinking plastic out of plastic water bottles. And something that I have found um, is there's this thing called a grail filtered bottle and you basically pour the water in and you push the filter through so you don't have to like sit and wait or put any tablets in it uses the pressure of you pushing the filter down through the water um, to actually filter the water and so then you could in that case use tap water and it also would be kind of great for like airplanes and airports <laughs> and um, it's kind of a one-stop shop where you don't have to worry about the water you're drinking but you also don't have to pick up a hundred water bottles on your trip. Something that I really like is called Life Straw. And so it's like a, imagine a very thick straw shape filter. And it comes with tops that fit like, like a larger one and a smaller one that kind of fit the mouths of most reusable bottles. So like different size Nalgene's for example. And you just have the straw and the top part and you can attach it to any reusable bottle and you can put any water in there. And like you, it has kind of one of those like sippy tops and it literally filters as you drink and you can use it all over the world. It's amazing. And it's like less than $30 on Amazon. But I think like trying to think of all, I recently interviewed Mara Hoffman about like how she travels and she fo the, she's a designer and focuses a lot on like being like aware and eco-conscious. And she talked about how before she goes on a trip, she thinks through all the different situations in which she'll encounter single use plastic. So she thinks about like the blankets on airplanes or the meals they'll, they'll serve or like she's going to need water. She's going to need these snacks and tries to actually bring reusable versions of all those things. So she has like a little silverware set. She brings a blanket scarf to avoid using a blanket. She like always has one reusable bottle and just like tries to identify those things beforehand. She doesn't print her boarding pass. And I think like when you kind of just take a few minutes to think through all those things you routinely do, you can kind of save a lot, especially if you're traveling as much as like we do and a lot of the people in our group do. Yeah, and I think it really kind of, it's less about what you do when you're traveling and it's more about making sure that those habits you already have in your day-to-day -day life carry over when you're out on the road when you don't have you know typically all the things that you would have at your disposal so thinking through you know having a tote bag in your suitcase in case you are grocery shopping or anything like that or bringing a tumbler for iced coffee that can double as a you know as a reusable water bottle and it's the tiny things that we kind of already do and making sure that we stick to those that can really help and um, I guess my other tip which is, you know, feels small but can add up over time is, you know, pack as little as you can because the weight of what you bring onto planes does make a difference too. And kind of like what Megan was saying about Mara Hoffman, I really like to think through my day-to-day -day itinerary, make sure I'm packing what I need for those things and then truly bringing nothing more than that in order to really minimize the amount of luggage that I bring with me on my flights. 
I think so. Going back to what Aaron said about destinations, picking your hotel or your Airbnb accordingly is also very important. And talking with the people who work there or live there about how they recycle, like what they're using, how much water they're using, all of those sorts of things are important and questions that you 100% are justified in asking. And especially if you're staying in an Airbnb, just making sure that you know from your host where the recycling bins are. If you have to go out of your way to do that, I would highly recommend doing it because you're essentially pretending like you live there and you should actually commit to that. Anyone else have any more tips? Yeah, I actually, I have a friend who's a consultant, so she travels like every single week um, to wherever she's based at the time. And we got in a conversation about this on like how you reckon with that amount of travel. And she talked about how a bunch of people at the firm she works at actually went to their management and were like, we really want you guys to buy carbon offsets for everything we're doing. And I think like, I know different media outlets have started doing that. And I think like, if you are in a role where you think like, like the power is in numbers and a large corporation that is sending people all over the world every single day or week, if they buy carbon offsets, that makes a much bigger difference than all the other little things. The little things matter, but it's like, those are the changes we need to like actually make an impact right now in the time that we need to. So that like, all the glaciers don't disappear. And I think use the power you have and like talk to people. And if you're in a situation where you can affect that kind of change, like do it. If you need more tips, you can go check out Catherine LeGrave's A to Z Guide to Not Killing the Planet When You Travel, which is on our website, which has a bunch of these little things that we're talking about that are 100% doable on your next trip. Even if you only can do two instead of all 26, you're definitely still trying. I'm going to wrap it up now. If you would like your question to be mentioned on our next FAQ podcast, be sure to post it in the group. Not only will you get tips from us, maybe, but you will definitely get lots of tips from all of the women in the Facebook group. A link to join will be listed in the show notes. Steph, where can people find you? Ask you more questions. Follow your travels on the internet. On both Instagram and Twitter, I'm at by Steph Wu. Erin, where are you? You can find me on Instagram at Erin underscore Florio. And Megan? And find me at, at Spirelli with a Y at the end. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. Please go and follow our Women Who Travel Instagram, which is at Women Who Travel, as you'd expect. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or iTunes. We come out with new episodes every Tuesday and read more about all of these things at womenwhotravel.com. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.